This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. We are at the point in the year where soybean pests really start to take off in numbers. By now, many are on their second and third generation. Also, as the corn dries down, some move from the cornfields and into the soybean fields. Being a highly nutritious broadleaf, there are lots of pests that will feed on soybean leaves. We are mostly focused on bean leaf beetles, spider mites, and moth worms. Every year, we see bean leaf beetles. Bean leaf beetles are quarter inch long red beetles with six black spots. They tend to chew circular holes in the leaves. The treatment threshold is seven beetles per row foot on soybeans with four or fewer nodes and 25% defoliation. Later in the growing season, it takes a lot more beetles to cause any yield loss from eating leaves. However, they can also feed directly on young pods. Every field will have at least some amount of bean leaf beetles, but rarely there is enough to warrant spraying. The green clover worm often takes off in population this time of year. They are smaller and light green worm. At this point, treatment thresholds will be over 10 worms per row foot. However, when clover worms get to high populations, there is a certain parasitic fungus that will take over and nearly wipe them out. Thistle caterpillars and webworms have similar treatment thresholds both of which can have higher number populations this time of year, but often not enough to warrant pesticides. Generally, these worms will be more of a problem in very young soybeans, where an outbreak can cause a lot more damage. Really, the bigger issue with soybeans is podworms and fall armyworms. Podworms are the exact same worm as corn earworms, and they will move from the corn into the soybeans. Since they feed directly on the pods, population thresholds are only a couple per row foot. Spider mites prefer years just like this one, hot and dry. They can be very difficult to spray for because they mostly stay underneath the leaves and are protected by webbing. The damage by spider mite looks a lot like drought stressed leaves, and spider mites, like most insects, are usually worse near the field edges. Spider mites have to be in pretty high levels before it is worth spraying for them. When scouting a field for insects, be sure to check multiple locations and not just the field edge. Many insects might be worse on the field edge because this is the first place to get to. Grasshoppers and stink bugs, for instance, can really travel, but they aren't picky where they feed. It is always important to remember that soybeans overcompensate in the number of leaves needed to fuel pods. In a general sense, soybeans can withstand 20% leaf defoliation without a reduction in yield. That 20% can look a lot worse than it really is. And of course, any pesticide application is going to have the downside that while it will decrease the bad bugs in the field, it will nearly eliminate all the good bugs. Another issue with drought is that it can be hard to tell where those treatment thresholds are. Where our yields might be down, the insect damage could actually end up being worse because the soybeans are at a smaller size with less ability to recover than they would be in a normal year. There are all kinds of insects out there in the soybean fields, both good and bad. If you have any questions over treatment thresholds or would like some insect identification, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Cooper with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Now that lots of forage sample results are coming across my desk, I'm also getting the question, what do these numbers mean? Or the comment, my neighbor said he had his hay tested. What all can you test for? The most basic information needed to develop a ration from a specific feedstuff, dry matter or moisture, crude protein, 
and an estimate of the energy content. Generally, energy is presented as total digestible nutrients, or TDN for short. Tacking on the analysis for microminerals like calcium or phosphorus can give a broader picture of the quality. Labs can also give us the amount of cell wall contents within the forage sample. This is the bulkiness correlated to the animal's intake of the feedstuff. You'll see this value called NDF, or neutral detergent fiber. Another number on the lab reports might be acid detergent fiber, or ADF. This is a measurement of the cellulose and lignin, leading to the digestibility of the forage. A higher ADF value indicates a more mature plant. Additionally, the acid detergent fiber value is used to calculate energy estimates. If the forage is a known nitrate accumulator, like sorghum, sedan grass, or has large amounts of Johnson grass, including a nitrate analysis should be considered, especially if the forage will be fed to pregnant cows. Most analytical laboratories have packages that include the most common numbers that a producer might need. Then you can add on other tests, like neutral detergent fiber or macro minerals such as calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, potassium, sodium, or sulfur. Including some additional analysis in the report can give insight into the quality of the feedstuff and improve the ability to predict animal performance. The objective of analytical testing of feedstuff is to improve our ability to meet the animal's nutrient requirements and ultimately predict animal performance. The unequivocal best method of evaluating the quality of a feedstuff is actually feeding the ingredient to an animal and marking performance over a set period of time under a specific set of conditions. But since that wouldn't be cost effective or timely, methodically appraising feedstuffs in a certified laboratory is the next best thing. There are, of course, points for errors, but lab testing is undeniably better than the this looks like really good stuff method of evaluation. Once you have your forage or feedstuff analysis in hand, calculating the amount to feed based on an animal stage of production is the next step. If you'd like assistance with creating these rations, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Kansas has three types of tree squirrels, gray squirrels, fox squirrels, and southern flying squirrels inhabit various areas of the state. Gray and fox squirrels are the main nuisance animal in the U.S. urban areas. The fox squirrel is the most common species and can be found in most cities or towns as well as in open woodlots, hedgerows, and shelter belts of rural Kansas. Fox squirrels are the largest of the three species, averaging 18 to 27 inches in length from their nose to the tip of their tail and weighing 1 and 3 quarters to 2 and a quarter pounds. 
The fox squirrel is also named because its color often resembles the brownish red-orange color of the red fox. Not all fox squirrels exhibit this color. Fox squirrels come in a variety of colors, including black, white, and several shades of brown or gray. The southern flying squirrel is eight and a half to nine and a half inches long. It is the smallest tree squirrel species found in Kansas. This squirrel is a protected non-game species with viable populations limited to the oak hickory forests of six southeastern Kansas counties. It does not fly, but glides on broad flaps of loose skin that extend along each side, from the front legs to its flanks. The flying squirrel moves from one tree to another, using its broad, flat tail as a rudder. Unlike the fox and gray squirrels, flying squirrels are nocturnal. They use their extremely large eyes and keen sense of smell for foraging at night. The flying squirrel's diet is similar to that of the fox and gray squirrels. It consumes nuts, fruits, berries, and insects such as moths and beetles. They readily use bird feeders and are frequently responsible for seeds mysteriously disappearing overnight. Flying squirrels are shy animals. Their nocturnal lifestyle keeps them virtually unknown to many people. Tree squirrels provide relaxation and enjoyment for many Kansans who spend time observing or photographing wildlife. Fox and gray squirrels are also popular game animals with hunters. You can improve woodlot habitats by planting nut trees, including hickories, walnuts, oaks, or pecans. To protect new seedlings and young trees from squirrels, place an expandable protective wrap around their trunks. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave and Strontz with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. The beginning of fall signals transitions in the garden, and while plants are going dormant, there are still tasks to complete before the garden shuts down completely for the winter. Aside from lawn care tips mentioned over the last three weeks, shrubs, trees, and herbaceous perennials also need work to keep plants healthy from year to year. Herbaceous perennials can either die back to the ground or persist through the winter. Perennials that die back will shrivel as temperatures cool and the weather dries out which often creates debris in the garden bed. These leaves and stems should be cut back to the ground to encourage sprouting in the following spring. Plants that can be cut back include hostas, irises, lilies, black-eyed susans, and all bulbs. The debris can then be composted along with any fallen leaves. It is important to make sure that you are not including any diseased leaves in your compost. Often, diseased pathogens will congregate in compost, and if the pathogens are not selective in what plants they infect, you could see disease outbreaks when using your compost as a mulch the following year. Discard diseased leaves through lawn waste disposal or through burning. Shrubs and trees will both need pruning in the fall. For trees, fall is the secondary pruning season to spring. Fall tree pruning will often be light and only to remove any structural defects 
that might be exacerbated by the extra weight of snow or ice. Shrub pruning is much more intensive, and the timing of shrub pruning is key to the long-term health of the plant. Pruning during dormancy will put much less stress on the plant the following season, so if the shrub is deciduous, pruning later into the fall is recommended. Evergreen shrubs like juniper and arborvitae do not go dormant and can be pruned at any time. When pruning deciduous shrubs, keeping them to a manageable size is the first priority for determining how much of the plant to remove. As always, do not prune out more than a third of the plant in any given year. If shrubs have gotten out of control or to an unmanageable size, they will need to be pruned down over successive years until they are at the size you want them to be. Some ornamentals benefit from the cooler temperatures that fall brings, and a few even become supplemental food sources. Plants such as chokeberry, serviceberry, medlar, and persimmon are often planted for qualities other than their fruit, as many consider these fruits to be unpalatable. However, these fruits will sweeten considerably during frosts. Astringent fruits, such as persimmon or chokeberry, those fruits determined to be sour, benefit most from this reaction, and as such are used in edible landscaping when fresh winter fruits are desired. For more information on edible plants that double as ornamentals, or for information on fall tasks to complete in the garden, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Port Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.